Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Amy, and I'm the executive pastor here. And if you've seen the balloons, then you may have guessed that it's a special day. It is our third birthday. So we'll be celebrating that in various ways today, but it's just good to be worshiping together this morning. So to get us started, um, show of hands, kids, grownups, this question is for everybody. How many of you have a brother or a sister? Yeah, a lot of us, a lot of us. And I want you to just think about your brother or your sister, or maybe you have lots of brothers and sisters. Think about how well you know them. You probably know what it sounds like when they chew. You probably know what it sounds like when they sleep. And think about how well your brother and sister know you. And then imagine that people start to say to you, you know, I think your brother or your sister is the perfect son of God. I think your brother might be God in the flesh, and I actually want to pattern my whole life after him or her. Do you think that you would believe them based on everything you know about your brother or your sister? I can definitely guarantee that if someone said that to my sister about me, she would probably laugh maybe get angry, but she would absolutely not believe it because she knows way too much about me to ever even remotely imagine that I was remotely godlike. But that's actually what we have in the book of James. And we're going to explore what it means that James is Jesus's brother. And there's this kind of corny preacher joke But it struck me as kind of profound the last couple of weeks as I've been meditating on James. And the joke is just that one of the best proofs that Jesus really was God is that his brother and his mom actually followed him and became his disciples, knowing him as well as they must have known him. So kids, while I'm talking this morning, I invite you to listen if you would like, but I'd also invite you to imagine what it would be like if Jesus were your own brother, if he lived and was growing up with you in your house, at your dinner table, in your bedroom. What do you think it would be like? What might be nice about it? What might be kind of frustrating about it? What might be kind of fun or cool about it? And you might just want to think about that. You may want to write something down. You may want to paint or draw maybe what your dinner table would look like with Jesus at it. Or you may want to talk to your parents or your brother or your sister after the service about what you think. Well, for the rest of us, all corny preacher jokes aside, I do think it's really helpful for us to remember that the book of James that we are preaching through was written by Jesus's brother. It's written by someone who was right there for Jesus's whole childhood, right there for all of his preachings and his healings, right there seeing his mannerisms, the way he responded to people, the way he treated people, the way he reacted when he was wronged, when he was tired, when he was hungry. James knew Jesus probably better than almost anyone else. And so when James calls us to Jesus's way of life, when he calls on us to really live like our faith in Jesus, 
James has a very fleshed out, a very practical picture of what that looks like. And he gives us access to it in this book. And so James chapter 2, which is our text for today, starts with James calling all of us his brothers and sisters, all the Christians who will read James' letter, he addresses as brothers and sisters. And he's talking about that kind of spiritual brotherhood and sisterhood in the gospel that I just read. When Jesus said that whoever does the will of God are Jesus's brothers and sisters. It's this brotherhood of those who are living as Christ lived. It's this way of life. And so verse one of chapter two says, my brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Now we'll talk more specifically about favoritism and about that word glorious in a minute, but the, the nugget of his question is just, are your actions consistent with what you say you believe about Jesus? Does your life match your faith? And this is a big theme for James. It came up a lot in chapter one when he talked about worthless religion that ignores orphans and widows. He talked about people who hear the word but who don't do anything about it. And here in chapter two, James is gonna talk about dead faith and the evidence of whether our faith is alive, whether it is a way of life for us, or whether it's dead and worthless in this chapter is favoritism. It's the way we treat people who are rich and people who are poor. It's the way we approach people of influence and power and people with none of that. So James asks, if you are showing favoritism to the rich, can you really possibly have a lively faith in Jesus. And I think, unfortunately, the church and the lives of so many in the church, including each one of us, but has this sad, long history of temptation with this particular sin. The church has often cozied up to people of power, people of political influence, to charismatic leaders, to people who can do something for them at the expense of the powerless or the poor. We don't have to think very long about the ways that plays out around us and throughout the saddest parts of church history. It's just this painful reality and it is a way we are all wired to want to get close to people who can do something for us with their money or their connections or their influence. But James says this kind of favoritism begs the question, do we really have faith in Jesus? And he's going to say it is completely inconsistent with a life of faith. And this chapter gives us three reasons why. So the first one that he gives is that favoritism is inconsistent with God's choice of the poor. All through scripture and all through God's dealings with humanity, God's favoritism runs the other direction. God shows favoritism toward the poor, toward the powerless, toward the most vulnerable and despised, people that society says are not worth very much. And God's 
James says that God has actually chosen to give those people riches of faith. He has chosen to give them treasures that the rich don't have. Okay, so that's the first reason. Favoritism is inconsistent with God's choice of the poor. The second reason is favoritism is inconsistent with the behavior of the rich. This chapter talks about rich people who despise Christians, who are persecuting and dragging them into court, who are abusing and harming them, and who could not care less about Jesus. And so he's saying, why are you rolling out the red carpet for these people who mistreat you, who abuse you, who blaspheme the name of Christ, who could not care less about the Jesus that you love? So that's the second reason. Favoritism is inconsistent with the way the rich are behaving. And then finally, and this is really the kicker, is favoritism is inconsistent with God's law. This is kind of James's trump card. Favoritism is sin. Favoring the rich is sin. It's a violation of God's law of love just as much as murder and adultery. And he says that if you do it, you are under the same judgment of God. So James builds a pretty strong case against favoritism. And he knows because he knows Jesus so intimately, he knows that favoring the rich just bears no resemblance to the life of Jesus. It has no place in the life of faith. And it places us under God's judgment. And so to really heed James's words, we need to sit under that judgment. We actually need to allow God to gaze into our lives, to sit under that gaze, to let his Holy Spirit examine us, examine our attitudes towards wealth, towards influence, toward people who can do things for us at the expense of people who can't. How are we favoring people who advance our ego or our ambition, or our greed? Or how are we looking at the poor and claiming that we care about them, we love them, but not actually living in a way that shows that, not actually doing anything? How are we favoring people based on things that are not what God chooses, things like their appearance, their age, their race, their status, their wealth. How are we deciding, instead of letting God decide, who matters and who doesn't? Who gets priority in our lives? And then as we notice these things, as we sit under the judgment of God for our favoritism, we repent. And we ask the Holy Spirit to change and transform us to lead us in the way of love, to mold us into the life of Jesus, to welcome in people that we have kind of cast aside in our thoughts as worthless. This is a really hard passage. And James is a really hard book. It's a book with a lot of judgment in it. And in fact, 
right there in verse 1, sorry, right there in verse 1, James actually kind of hints at the judgment that's coming because you might remember he calls Jesus our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now that sounds nice in English and that's why our translation translates it that way. But the wording is actually a little stranger than that. It's a little clunkier. The wording is actually our Lord Jesus Christ of glory. Or more accurately, our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. James is actually calling Jesus the glory of God. He is reminding his hearers of that Old Testament glory that was the evidence of God's presence and his judgment. This glory that was in the temple and in the tabernacle and on God's heavenly throne that said God the judge was in the midst of his people. And so by calling Jesus Christ the glory, James right at the start of this chapter is setting us up for an encounter with Jesus, an encounter with the judgment and the presence of God in our midst. It is intended to be hard. It's intended to lay us bare before this God who is here to judge the way we think about poverty and riches, the the rich and the poor, about who matters. And James, throughout this chapter and throughout his book, is going to put us in that uncomfortable encounter. He's going to ask if our lives look like Jesus and if they look like the Sermon on the Mount, the things that Jesus taught, the hardest things that Jesus said. But this kind of encounter with God's glory is not doom and gloom. Because it's in that encounter that God's people all through scripture are changed. It's in that encounter that they and we cry out to God for mercy and then receive it in abundance. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus promise that God's mercy is forever there for us. Right at that place of judgment, right at that place where we think, I cannot possibly love my neighbor the way Jesus calls me to, there is this word of mercy always spoken over us. And James says this. He says in verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. And it does. So, bringing our lives into accordance with Christ's life, letting God gaze into our lives and measure it against the Sermon on the Mount, all of this puts us into this constant encounter with Jesus. And James tells us in verse 8 how in that place we're supposed to live. He says, you do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now that love your neighbor as yourself is a direct quote from the law given in Leviticus. And you might remember that Jesus also quoted that law in Leviticus in the book of Matthew. You might remember that if you got to church early, we say that at the beginning of our service. I can't tell you how many years when my kids were little, I was so late to church that I didn't even know this was in the liturgy. But at the very beginning of the service, 
we hear Jesus's words from Matthew spoken over us as the summary of the law, to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We hear how all the law and the prophet is captured in that. And we say it right at the beginning to say, we are people who live under this law. We are people who live under this neighbor love. This is the way our lives are meant to look. And James calls this the royal law because it's the law of King Jesus, our royalty. This is the law of Jesus's kingdom. Neighbor love is the way the kingdom of God is ordered. It is not like the kingdom of the world. It is not like the kingdom of sin. This is the law of the kingdom, loving your neighbor as yourself. And before that starts to sound kind of impossibly burdensome, in verse 12, James also calls it the law of liberty. This is the law of liberty because God has liberated us to live under it. By his death and resurrection, Jesus has set us free so that we can love our neighbors as ourselves, so that this law can become the way we order our lives and our little corner of the world. When we think about the law of the world, we think about a way that crushes the poor and privileges the strong. We think about a way that repays evil for evil a way of vengeance, a way that doesn't care for your neighbor, a way that doesn't hold human life and human dignity in high regard, a way of life that's calloused about human suffering, a way of life that doesn't know how to rest, how to Sabbath, how to let God care for us and for others. It's this life of hustle and clawing our way through the world. Well, yesterday, as you know, was the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and I would imagine that all of you, like me, were probably spending the day reflecting on where you were when that happened, on what these 20 years have looked like, on how the world has changed. I was a college senior. I heard about the first crash during my Spanish class. I saw the second one live on TV. And I spent a lot of the day yesterday reflecting on how things have changed since then, and particularly the, what we've seen in the last few months and in the last 18 months or so. I feel like there's no escaping that this terrible, tragic day altered our world and that so many of the consequences that day just lay bare before us the way of sin and the way of the world is a tragedy. It is a way of suffering. It's a way of incredible pain. And I found myself longing not to live in that way. I wanted to be freed from the way of the world. And Jesus, or sorry, James comes to us with this good news of the kingdom and this royal law of liberty saying, it does not have to be this way. It was not made to be this way. You don't have to live under that law. Your faith in Jesus liberates you to live in God's kingdom, under God's rule, under this law of loving your neighbor.
This love will cost us. Our model is Jesus. Our model is the cross. But it is freedom and joy and peace and hope. This law of love is what we were made for. And when we live under it, we get this glimpse of the way we will live forever in the kingdom of heaven. It is this foretaste of glory. And because this law of love is so hard and so costly, because we cannot possibly live up to it for even a second, it also puts us into this living, daily, fresh contact with the mercy of Jesus that is just so abundant for us. This is a faith that is anything but dead. It is alive and abundant with love and with mercy and with transformative power in our lives. So let's ask God for it before we enter into silence. Jesus, you are our brother, you are our judge, you are the glory in our midst, and we ask for your presence to reveal what is in us. And then we ask that whatever you may find there, that we would receive your mercy again. We pray that you would help us to be people who live under your law, be people who pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth and in our lives as in heaven. Amen. <laughs>